Southbridge. So the video you just saw, Matt and Misty Hetzbeth have been part of Southbridge from the beginning, and they were sent from our church there to begin the ministry Hearts Cry. And we've sent several teams over the last several years and seek to support them as a church. And um, we ask that you continue to pray for them, consider maybe how you could be a part of it and uh, be involved. And you can look them up online and um, pay attention to the Southbridge teams that may be going if you'd be interested in going uh, next time. There is a process to be a part of that. So the reason why we showed that video today is because we are partnering with churches around the world today, um, focusing on orphan care. It's called Orphan Sunday. And uh, we actually have uh, one of several ministries of our church. One uh, ministry is called Reclaim 117, which actually is taking its name from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. This verse reads, Learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless plead the case of the widow. And so there was a pocket of people at our church that wanted to see us have more concentration on orphan care. And so Reclaim 117 was born out of scripture, born out of conviction. And we have more and more volunteers from Southbridge coming together to see us grow and our ability as a church family to do right by God's command. And so hearts cry. Yesterday we had a 5K called the Run to Reclaim. It was our fourth annual run. It was a 5K, a one-mile walk. Lots of people came out even in the rain. Some people thought the rain might slow up the run. I think the distance was my problem. I liked the rain, but so a lot of us actually loved orphans more than we hated running, and so we came out, and uh, if you missed that yesterday, you missed an opportunity then to, at least yesterday, to make an investment. So the money that's made from that race goes to seek to encourage Hearts Cry. In the past, it's gone to providing interest-free loans or grants to those that are seeking to adopt, because, of course, adoption is costly. And uh, we just want to grow in our affection for God's desires, and that is to be mindful. And so just a couple notes right away, then I'm going to pray. Um, you know, what are the biblical reasons that we should care about orphans? In fact, if you're a note taker, you should write some things down today. Here's a couple. What are some biblical reasons that we should take care of orphans? Number one, because God is concerned for all people, for they are made in his image. This is why we fight for the right for life, because people are image bearers of God. And number two, uh, because God has a clear concern for the fatherless. Isaiah says this, James chapter 1, verse 27, says if he was into religion, the kind of religion that he's into, that God is into, is the one that takes care of widows and orphans, and then to make sure that you're not polluted by the world. So Old Testament, New Testament, we see that God has a concern for the fatherless. And number three, because God commands his people to share his concern for the fatherless. So as a church family, we're trying to grow uh, in our desire and our commitment pulling together to make an impact in this world for the life of orphans, connecting orphans to Jesus for life change, which is the mission and vision of this church, to connect people to Jesus for life change. This morning, our lead pastors asked me to share, and I'm grateful for the privilege to share with you. Basically, it's two messages in one, a message about orphan care, Orphan Sunday, and then continuing our series about happiness. And so before we open up God's word, let's just go and ask God to instruct us this morning. Our Father, we come before you. We recognize that you are the Lord that you are the example and standard of mercy. And God, as a church family, we come before you and we ask that you would instruct us, that you teach us, correct, and encourage us, challenge us, convict us. Lord, we uh, turn to your word weekly when we gather because we know in by it there is life. And Lord God, we just want to be a church family that does what you want us to do and are being a people that you want us to be. Help us, God, please. And so... We ask, God, that you would instruct us this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. A question I asked you, uh, Bible scholars here, how will the world know that we're Christians? Does anyone know the answer? Say it. By our love, the scripture says, yes. And an expression of love is mercy. And reflecting God's tangible mercy as it relates to the orphan is by making a way for orphans to be cared for. And as Christians, uh, Christians have been doing this since Christ has ascended to the Father's side. He died, rose again, ascended, and Christians have been a part of caring for the fatherless even since that time. A lot of different ways, adoption, foster care, ministering in countries that do not allow international adoption, training, supporting, resourcing, prayer. Christians have been a part of this. These are all expressions of God's mercy toward those in the greatest need. This mercy is an, is an expectation, actually, for those that are living the kingdom life, the truly happy life. And so if you've been with us for a few weeks, you'd know that we've been looking at a series um, entitled, So You Want to Be Happy. <laughs> so we want to know what God's view of happiness. And we've learned from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 thus far, that happiness is really a deep-seated contentment. It's like a beyond joy. We don't really have a word for it. The kind of happiness Jesus is talking about is more than just that your team won today. And it comes at a really interesting price and cost. So if you've got a copy of the scriptures, and it's good to bring your own because we look at it every week. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now when the, he saw the crowds, that is Jesus, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed or truly happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, last week we looked at verse 5. Next week, Lord willing, our lead pastor will merge verse 6 and the following verse, after verse 7, together as we continue our study. But I've been asked to really look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. See, mercy comes from a heart that knows its spiritual poverty. That's being poor in spirit. We bring nothing to the table to God to help us in our need for salvation, to help us in our need for a relationship with God. We bring nothing. We just bring our sin to the table. Blessed are truly happy are those that recognize that. Blessed are truly happy are those that have grieved over the sin, those that mourn, and, and have learned to live humbly dependent on God in service to others. That's what Pastor Scott taught us last week about meekness, power and restraint, really more about humility dependent on God so that we are free to serve. Verse 6, which we'll look at next week, truly happy are, are, is the heart that is hungry for God to satisfy with his righteousness. Think about the things that your heart longs for, like a divided heart. Truly happy are those that hunger for Christ's righteousness and you'll be filled. And then our verse today, the heart is truly happy that is merciful. The mercy that God blesses is itself the blessing of God. Mercy comes from mercy, in other words. So what is mercy? It's a word that we use often. Some define it as a not getting what you do deserve. Maybe you remember growing up and you did something wrong and it was time to be disciplined from your parents, but they were just too tired to do that. You might think to yourself, that's a form of mercy. And you praise the Lord for it. But that's, that's simply an experience of mercy for sure. But in English, mercy closely relates to words like uh, compassion, sympathy, refraining from punishing. The Greek word for mercy essentially means the same thing in English. The New Testament was written mostly in the Greek. But Jesus most likely spoke in Aramaic. And the idea behind his statement about mercy most likely comes from a larger concept found in the Hebrew Old Testament. 
The word used there most connected with God's mercy um, is H-E-S-E-D, or sometimes spelled C-H-E-S-E-D, hesed, love. Is a word that means God's covenantal promise-keeping, loving kindness, from which mercy flows and acts. So real mercy, God's mercy, which is obviously the real mercy, is more than just how you feel towards someone. Mercy is an actual compassionate treatment that addresses the need of others. That's a good thought. You should write that down. Mercy is an actual compassionate treatment that addresses the needs of others. So God is obviously the standard of mercy all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, this week in the small group study, every covenant member and every person in a group gets emailed the group study on Fridays. If you'd like to get that study, you can put that down in your connection card and just drop it in the offering box. I put every mention I could find of God's mercy as long as we had space for it in the study. We don't have time this morning to look at all the scriptures related to God being the standard of mercy, the giver of mercy. The source of mercy. His mercy then directs him to initiate relationships with people who do not deserve to be in relationship with him. And his steadfast love then sustains that relationship. This is God. The mercy of God is seen all throughout the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament. In the Old Testament, you know, the most prevalent example is that people would cite probably stories that you know that God called a man out from people, um, pagans, idol worshipers, Abraham, and brought him into his own and a relationship with him. And then from that man built up a generation of people that would be called God's people. And in time, those same people were brought into slavery in Egypt. Have you heard this story before? And then they were saved from slavery. How is that possible? Miraculously saved. God heard their cries, saw their misery, and moved and acted in his good time. That's mercy. The book of Exodus shows that. Maybe you've seen the movie. That's God's mercy in display. If you want to look at other examples of God's mercy, you can read the book of Judges, which is actually beyond R-rated. But God's people go into a land, they get overcome, in a sense, by the idol worship of the people in that land, so they, become, they want to be like those people, so they do that, then God saves them. He confronts them, saves them. Happens again, then again, then again. And that's unlike human mercy. Unlike human mystery, the scriptures teach us that, that God's mercy cannot be exhausted. There's tons of scriptures about that, I found. This, proved, this is proved by his ability and willingness to forgive his people over and over again. We see in the book of Judges, we see it throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over again. Anybody here, parent of elementary children, where you ask your child to do the same thing over and over again, how do you respond? Anybody ready for a nap? You're so tired, you can sleep during this message if you'd like. How about this? Your child doesn't do what you've asked them to do. So it's both ways. They're not doing something that you don't want them to do, or you got it. Does anyone here raise their voice? You send your child in the room to go pick up just a few things, and 30 minutes later, not only those things out, but even new things are out. Mm. We're the same as them. We're adult versions of that. The Lord inspires and teaches and corrects and calls us and sometimes we're into it and sometimes we aren't. So forgiveness is an expression of mercy and God forgives, 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 forgives. In the New Testament, we see through Christ. Christ is the example. Christ himself is God, sent God in flesh, died and rose again for your and my sake that we might have a relationship with God. Christ is... Life is the mercy bridge. It's a way to freedom from our slavery. So we know that there was a slavery in the Exodus, but our slavery to sin. Christ is the freedom road from that. 
This redemptive ministry of Christ is, is a clear expression of God's ministry, ministry uh, ex- extended to a desperate world, a needy world. Through mercy, Christ made us, made a way for us. And think about who we, who we were. Worldly, alienated, spiritually dead. When someone says, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, if they're not in Christ, they're dead. Because that's what Jesus says. The problem's with Jesus, not with some church and how they teach. It's with Jesus. God says that we are worldly, alienated, spiritually dead, orphaned, imperfect enemies. And God made a way for that kind of person, me, to be in relationship with a holy, perfect, heavenly, loving, merciful Father. Amazing, right? The scriptures teach about this, that we were not a part of his, of his group, not a part of his people and brought in. First Peter, the, the, the apostle Peter writes this to encourage Christians to remember what God has done, to praise God for what he's done. You know, there's a half-truth, and I've preached it several times before, that people say, well, we're all children of God. Well, in the sense that everyone's a created being and God's the creator, but not everyone's actually in his family. So it's actually a half-lie or more. The apostle writes to the believers, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. There's nothing better than being in the light. John coming forward and sharing his story as he did in our time of short time of worship, that's freedom for him. No one's got anything on him because no one can say what he's done. He's already telling everybody. It's freedom. There's no anxiety with the person that's in light. You don't have to worry about being caught. That's what Christ affords us. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are people. Talking about believers, people of God. Once you had not received, say it, mercy, but now you have received. There's our point. Being brought in is by God's mercy that he is calling people unto himself. That is mercy. People that do not deserve actually are against him. Whoever's your worst enemy, think about it. Who is the person that's caused you the most trouble to be like bringing them close? Wow. In the New Testament, we see through Christ a way to freedom from slavery to sin and then freedom to be into his family. So Jesus did for you what you could not do for yourself. Jesus did for me what I could not do for myself. And see, that's another aspect of, of mercy. So if you're a note taker, you could write this down. Another thought or definition of mercy is mercy is doing for others what they themselves cannot do for themselves. Mercy is doing for others what they cannot do for themselves. Now, be careful because we have to think about what's the difference between mercy and enabling. Enabling is keeping a capable person from experiencing the negative consequences of their neglected responsibilities. That's enabling. Mercy is different because it's doing for someone what they can, they're incapable of doing for themselves. And listen, brothers and sisters, we could not save ourselves. We could not white-knuckle it enough to be good boys and good girls. We can't do 7 to 12 ordinances. We can't pay the penance and then burn the rest off in purgatory, then be good with God. We can't do it. We bring nothing to the table. The idea of God's mercy bringing people into his family to make them a people is actually addressed well in Romans chapter 9. It's good to turn there. I'm going to turn there. It's good to get in our Bibles. Romans is an incredible book written to the Christians in Rome, I believe, by Paul. It's theologically rich. It really starts off kind of, kind of dim because it just basically talks about being enemies of God, that we uh, people are turned against God. But then as we get, continue to go through, we see how God moves and acts. It's really a testament to his great love and mercy. 
And in Romans chapter 9, we actually see Paul talking to the, the readers about the contrast between Pharaoh and Moses, just as we looked at with the idea of the Exodus. God says to Moses, and Paul is citing it for the Roman believers, For he says to Moses, chapter 9, verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. What doesn't? Being in his family. Skip down then. Skip down to verse 25. As he says in Hosea, this is Paul then quoting the Old Testament prophet, and we'll look at Hosea later. I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one, verse 26. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. So it's a morning, this morning's message is really a mashup. It's actually two sermons in one, and we're going to go back and forth between the two ideas of orphan care and mercy. And what we see, we see it right here. God's we see a clear concept that within salvation, the heirs of salvation that are called objects of mercy, verse 23, which we didn't see, and then called sons of the living God. Skip forward, skip back then to chapter 8. We see more of this idea of being sons. Chapter 8, verse 14 through 17. You see how mercy and adoption fit together. Starting in verse 14. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again. There's that slave language. Again, to fear but you received a spirit of sonship. Does anyone have a different translation? Spirit of adoption. There's the word. Because we are sons, daughters, we're heirs, sons is the generic term, children into his family by God's great mercy. We have the spirit of adoption, spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Abba means daddy. It's a very intimate term. Some people feel very uncomfortable calling God that, but those that have been brought into his family by Christ, through faith, can say it. That's why some people pray, Father in heaven, our heavenly Father. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. See, God's mercy through Christ provides for our adoption into his family. Through his mercy, we've been adopted into, um, actually, a royal family. That's why we can call him our king. And that's why you could probably call yourself a prince or a princess, but tell your friends that they're going to think you're crazy. Sometimes we act like we are, but not usually acting like we're a prince of the king. Sometimes we think we're the king. And what's so cool about this language in Romans is that it says that we're heirs, that we have this inheritance. In fact, for, uh, Matthew chapter 5 says we'll inherit the kingdom. And what's interesting about God's kind of inheritance versus a worldly kind of inheritance is that usually for a worldly inheritance to happen, someone has to die. And yet in God's inheritance, someone died and rose again, and then we die to ourselves, then we get an inheritance. We ourselves die. Then we're made alive in Christ. And the inheritance is there. Isn't that cool? We see the same ideas of God's mercy and linked to adoption and um, written by the same author in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is a, one of my favorite books in the Bible. And uh, chapter 2, we see this idea of mercy. In fact, the beginning of chapter 2, we won't look at every verse here, the beginning of chapter 2 says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live when we followed the ways of the world and the rule of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan. The Spirit is not working them of those who are disobedient. We were objects of wrath. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgression. It is by grace that you've been saved. Well, saved for what purpose? Go down to verse 10. For we are God's workmanship. That word's poema, which means work of art, masterpiece. You might have looked in the mirror this morning and thought, that's got to be a lie. But no, he's doing something awesome. 
When he brought you into his family, he's doing something that he thinks is awesome. In fact, Romans chapter 9, which we just looked at, Paul has a little excerpt there about the pottery telling the potter what he should be doing and not doing. No, no, no. When he brings you to his family, he's molding you and making you what he thinks is awesome. For us to have a problem with that, we actually have a problem with him. He's doing something awesome. What is he doing in us, though? Why did he save us? Save us for what reason? Created in Christ Jesus, so when we brought into faith, brought into his family, to do good works. I wonder if the good work is actually adoption. I wonder if the good works are some mercy ministries. When did he plan for those good works to be done? When was his plan in place, which God prepared in advance, slang for from the beginning of time, for us to do? By mercy, we're brought into God's family. By mercy, we're saved. And he says this in chapter 1 as well. So go back a chapter. Chapter 1, verse 4. The end of verse 4 says, In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. I'll read all of verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Amazing. Not because we were awesome, but because he is. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one capital O he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Mercy saves for us then to show mercy. Mercy saves, mercy adopts. Everyone is born a slave to sin. Everyone. Enemies of God. And that's not a message that people are telling others, but it's biblical. It's in the scriptures. We just saw it. But God, who is rich in mercy, adopts us through faith in Christ. We've done nothing to deserve what has been given to us. And this imitation is given to all people, whoever will come. Whoever will come are welcome to be in his family by trusting in the work and ministry of Christ on your behalf. You're welcome to come into his family. We do nothing to deserve this gift but God. Doesn't it make sense then why we should pursue the ministry, the mercy ministry of caring for orphans? Doesn't it? I mean, orphan care is a beautiful picture of the mercy that believers have experienced by the mercy of God, isn't it, loved ones? I mean, when you look at the scriptures, you and I have to justify why we don't participate. So let me share with you, I've shared with you several times in different ways, and I'll just be a little more blatant this time, how adoption has played a huge part, significant role in my life. In 1953, my grandma and grandpa Toby. John Merlin, Toby, and Amy Joy pursued and adopted my dad, who was born to teenage parents and had an amazing courage to give him a forever family. And my dad happened to be adopted by people that knew the Lord, and then my dad came to know Christ through the work of the local church, met my mom in youth group. Like, we have SYU, Southbridge Youth United. My dad met my mom in youth group got married in 1973, and then the joy of their life was born, me, in 1977. <laughs> yeah, I'm really special. My mom tells me, anyway, she really thinks I'm special. And th- she thinks all you guys should think I'm special, too. I came to know Christ, so I was adopted into God's family in 1984 through a children's ministry program called Awana, which I've shared with you before. And then I go to a Christian college and 
take every Bible class I can take and take education courses, not sure what God's going to do with my life. But at the end of, middle of my senior year, I meet my wife, Amanda, who is one of six students studying social work on the campus, preparing to be a social worker for adoption and foster care. We get married in July 28, 2001, and then she waits for me to be interested in foster care adoption for ourselves. Waits, 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 waits. I always thought that our contribution to the orphan epidemic of solving that was Amanda's work as a social worker. In time, I felt a conviction come over me that we need to be more a part of it and through adoption. Couldn't fight it. So I, at one point, went to her and said, we need to be more, do more. We need to start the process of adopting. At that time, we had uh, four children. Still have them. <laughs> so we filled out the paperwork and on the paperwork's really tough. And Amanda knew what we were getting to because she does this with families. She, this is what she does. And now she's on the other side of it. And I, I only know what I know through her. So we didn't know what got local, local adoption, foster care, or uh, international. We looked at international, maybe thinking that we'd save someone from trafficking. I thought for sure God was going to give us this little girl. We didn't really specify a country. We looked at countries that weren't popular. Bulgaria, Poland, we thought of. So we filled out our paperwork, and one of the things that we put on, because of an inclination in my heart, is that um, I have a disposition of care for the hearing impaired. I don't know where it comes from. I've had it since I was very little. So we, one of the things we put on our paperwork is that we're interested in a child that has hearing impairment. On September 29, 2011, my wife and I received this email. I'll show it to you. Subject, deaf child information. Pretty blatant. We have one person at church that I think can read this. Is J.D. in here? He's one of our elders. I'll tell you what I think it might say. <laughs> Vladimir, born September 24, 2010, eye color gray, hair color blonde, medical diagnosis, conductive hearing loss, unspecified asphyxia at birth, neonatal jaundice, help group three. Measurements as of June 8, 2011. Height, 68 centimeters, weight, 7.5 kg. Physical development, delayed growth, neuropsych development, according to age. And they sent a picture. So it's our first glimpse of this baby. I'm at the church office two offices ago. Amanda sends this to me. So it comes from an agency in Russia to our agency, then to Amanda. And they're saying, here's a child to consider. Deaf baby boy, Kozhek and Vladimir Nikolaevich. And... Amanda was sending it to me, and we didn't even make a decision. I felt like Amanda was asking me, do I want to accept the gospel? What am I going to say? Mm, I don't really like how he's tilting his head. No, give us another. And what's so amazing is the Lord is so, he doesn't have to be this way, and this is a terrible word to use for him, like gentlemanly in the sense that I beg God that we wouldn't have to choose a child of children because I wouldn't have the maturity to do it. I wouldn't be able to do it. On what basis would I do that? So he was sent to us. And when it's not the country we looked at, we never looked at Russia because Russia requires three trips and it's the most costly form of adoption. We don't have that kind of ability. So by faith and through God's enabled mercy, we pursued him. This boy had no idea of who we are, no idea that we and many of you were praying for him, no idea that many of our friends sacrificed themselves so that we might be able to financially. We cashed in our retirement, whatever we had to do it. That wasn't close. People gave us miles to get over there for the three trips. Three trips to Russia. To show you where he was, can we put a map up of Russia? Ark in Galsk is where he is. I can't even say it right. My wife corrects me every time. I don't want to say it. 
is basically by Finland, not here. 20 hours of dark a day when we go there in January 2012 to go visit him. This was our first ex- visit with him. Next picture. That's the second snow suit he was wearing because he had one over that, meaning it's crazy cold there. Now, I like the cold because I use it for power. I don't like the heat so much, but it was pretty chilly there. This is one of the workers from the orphanage that brought him. And the Lord also honored a ridiculous request I had and that said, God, I don't want to be able to visit an orphanage. It just so happened that Titus, we named him Titus, Vladimir comes from an orphanage that doesn't allow foreigners to visit, so they'd have to bring him to us at a hotel. And we just had one-on-one time just with him. The Lord didn't have to do it, and he did. He's merciful to my ridiculous worries. Our first visit there was, was tough because I was really going to visit my son, and Amanda was really protective because we, we had no permission over him yet. In fact, Russia thought we were going to see if we'd approve of him because other Russian couples looked at him and said no because of his hearing loss. That's how we got matched with him. Our experience was very strange, and we were at a different place. In fact, J.D. Henserling, one of our elders who can read this language, tried to prep me and told me what names they might have for Vladimir and told me about the culture. He said, Jason, your form of approaching people you don't know is going to be very off-putting to them because you smile at people that you don't know, and they don't want you acting like your friends when you're not friends. I thought to myself, how can I be codependent there then? What am I going to do to make sure they all like me? So we went over there and Learned a lot about ourselves and about the Lord. He had no idea that we'd chosen love. That we were willing to have him to our home to give him our name, to give him a new name. And we did. Titus Alexander, Guardian Defender Toby, which I think means awesome. We were willing to learn sign language. Our family was willing to learn sign language. This is what we were getting into. Whatever we could do, whatever we had to give, we were ready to give. We were overwhelmed by the mercy of God in our lives that we're willing. And it's been wonderful and difficult and painful and sanctifying and costly. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing. I'd do it over and over. A few months later, after we got back from our third trip, this was August 17th, I think it was, or 15th, 2012. Russia closed off adoptions for Americans. It was a political thing. It's still closed. Here's what he looks like today. That's exactly what he's like. We thought we'd be getting this baby that's uh, malnourished and stuff, and we, we met... Um, the Incredible Hulk, you know. <laughs> when we were in Moscow getting ready to bring him home, a doctor from Moscow also had to visit, so we had to travel with Titus to where he was, to Moscow to get other approvals, and then go to U.S. Embassy, which we learned a lot of things there that we weren't told from the Russians. And um, the doctor came in, and he was like filling in the door frame when he came to, he was tall, filled with, and he said of Titus that Titus was a monster, you know. I shared with the first service, I know we don't talk about dreams often at Southbridge, but I had this dream several months ago that Titus was 16 and he wanted to go somewhere where mom and I, a man and I didn't want him to go. And I thought to my dream, in my dream, we're going to tell you no, but you're going to do what you want to do because I can't stop you. His hearing is great today, perfect hearing. He's 95 percentile in weight, 80 percentile in height, and 96 percentile in body mass index. He's really sweet in Amanda. I failed to share this with the first service, but um, the first six months that we'd, I'd come home from work after we brought him home, he'd cry at the sight of me. See, that, that doesn't make the orphan books. 
He didn't want anything to do with me. I wonder if that's any kind of, any kind of relationship that people have with God. Like he longs to be in a relationship, but we just push him. I kiss his face like a thousand times. Oh, he hates it. I just want to I just want him to know that he's loved. He's he's mine. I just want him to know Christ. All of you that have been a part of it, we owe such such great gratitude to you because if he comes to know Christ, then you're you're a part of that story. And people say, Well, he's so lucky to have you, it's because Amanda's so awesome. But we say we're the ones that are blessed because we're learning so much of the Lord through him. So that's one. We all work together to, for one. What are we going to do now? How many more are there? Some statistics from the Christian Alliance of Orphans. You can go to their website and learn more about orphan care, Christian Alliance for Orphans. Here's some statistics. Although... Reflecting only broad projections, the estimated number of orphans globally currently reported by the UNICEF and the World Health Organization include one, uh, 17.6 million children worldwide have lost both parents. That's called a double orphan. 150 million children worldwide have lost either one parent, single orphan, or both parents. Missing from the estimates, though, there are many inherent limitations to any data that claims to be truly global in nature. While such data can help us gain a clearer picture of the size and scope of need, it can also be misleading. One of the greatest weaknesses in these global orphan estimates is that they include only orphans that are currently living in homes. They do not count the estimated 2 to 8 plus million children living in institutions, nor do the current estimates include the vast number of children who are living on the streets, exploited for labor, victims of trafficking, or participating in armed conflict. Thus, global orphan statistics significantly underestimate the the number of orphans worldwide and fail to account for many children that are amongst the most vulnerable and most in need of a family. What are we going to do? What are we going to do about this? And that's the response. I mean, we don't, we don't know what to do. See, we can feel bad about it. We can feel sorry for children as we can in other min- mercy ministry opportunities. That we're just focusing on orphan care this morning, but we can feel sorry for the poor. We can feel sorry for the abandoned, the sick, the downtrodden, for our widows and widowers in our church and in our neighborhood. We can feel sorry and sad for them, but feeling sorry and showing mercy are not the same. Mercy is, is an action. Mercy moves on behalf of those that cannot, can't meet their needs in themselves. Titus had no shot. At age 16, tracked out either going to the military or being on the street. And because of some of his delays that he currently has and may have forever, he'd probably not make the military, so this boy would be on the street. We got him. He's, he's welcome to live in my home all my days. If he doesn't develop any farther right now, he's welcome to live in my home. Isn't this how the Lord treats us? Jason, you may not develop any farther than you are right now. You're welcome to be in my kingdom. See, Jesus Christ is the minister of mercy, and we've, we've taken time now to look at how mercy is a part of salvation, but Christ not only displays mercy through his substitutionary death, but also through his ministry of interceding, that's praying for you, his provision, his care, his miraculous healings. See, people would call out, you can look at this in Scripture, would call out, be merciful, good teacher, Lord, Jesus, be merciful. And guess what he would do? Be merciful. Mercy would just come from him. And so that means he didn't just repeat, teach repentance, which he did. That was his message. He didn't teach a message that everything's okay. He teached the message of repentance. He didn't just 
tell the kingdom to come, which he did do. He did tell the kingdom to come. Or simply tell them that God understands. He also ministered to their pain. So he met temporary needs and eternal needs. And yet many churches today want to do one or the other. Social gospel, social justice stuff, or just, just evangelize. Right? What good is it giving food to someone that doesn't have food if they're also going to hell? I understand the point. But how do you refute, biblically, mercy ministry? Can't do it. If truly happy or merciful, as our series is telling us, truly, if true happiness comes from demonstrating mercy because you've received mercy, then you would think that we would all be compelled to show mercy, don't you? Because <laughs> everyone wants to be happy, I think. So what's the problem, loved ones? The problem is this. By nature, people are unmerciful. And that's because extending mercy to others takes an effort that we want to give and usually costs more than we want to pay. I'm so glad Jesus didn't do that. I know that our entrance into his family cost him his life. I'm so glad he didn't say that cost. That's too much. See, the world likes to look out for the self. The world looks to find ways to to blame the downtrodden for, for being downtrodden. I hope you haven't done that. The world likes revenge. Who doesn't like a revenge movie? The world withholds forgiveness because then it seems because it would seem like someone gets off the hook if you forgive. But that's actually a lie because someone did pay for that sin. Christ. But that's a justice and a mercy that the world finds ridiculous, finds foolish. And the scriptures tell us that the world will find it foolish, that the things of God are foolishness to men. The things of salvation are the foolishness to the world. And let me just tell you this. If you've been prompted to thinking about, okay, acts of mercy toward other people, maybe it's not simply about orphan care, but other people that you know that need mercy from you. You're not enabling them, but you want to demonstrate mercy. Let me just tell you this, and pastorally encourage you this, shepherd you a little bit. You will have critics then, inside the church and outside the church. Let me give an example from our own life. Someone saying this, don't you have enough kids already? See, we had four biologically before we pursued Vladimir. We weren't pursuing Titus because we hoped for children. We were pursuing Titus because we have hope. When I give money to the person on the side of the street, when prompted by the Spirit, I don't have to worry about what he's going to do with it. All I all have to do is work off the prompting. And yet you can get criticism. You're going to face criticism. You want to do foster care for people? You're going to get criticized for that. You want to foster or adopt a child that's of a, a different race than you are? You're going to get criticized for that. You want to do something, some kind of mercy ministry? You want to work at Gateway Crisis Pregnancy Center, First Choice Pregnancy Solutions, or work with the poor, or go minister to widows, or go visit our shut-ins? You're going to get criticized because the world is anti-mercy. However, everyone wants it for themselves when they're in need. It's a problem. So get ready for the fight when you go to act. And to not act is a problem, isn't it, loved ones? But praise God, the mercy that Jesus has doesn't follow the world's lead. And redeemed children of God don't either. God's mercy occurs from one person to another because repentant people, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those that are poor in spirit, who have been given mercy from God, demonstrate that mercy toward others. So let me tell you this too, as a shepherding sense. When you go to do something merciful toward another, you're going to get criticized for that, or people are going to be critical of that. 
because it creates attention in them in a couple ways. Why don't I do that? Why are you doing that? But it also creates attention with the recipient in this way. They want to know, why did you do it? And loved ones, let me tell you the answer to that question. It's the same answer I have for every message I teach with you, basically. It's this. Oh, because of Jesus. Why did you give me this? Why did you drop off this gift? Why did you help me with my rent? Why did you? Because of Jesus. Well, don't you have enough kids? Why are you pursuing this one? Why would you go to Russia? Because of Jesus. And people don't know what to do with that answer. Because they themselves maybe have not yet received that mercy from Christ. Mercy begets mercy, doesn't it, loved ones? Here's an example, an everyday example. I just cited it a a little bit ago. Giving to the poor, okay? Luke chapter 12, verse 33, Jesus is teaching about followership of him, discipleship of him, following him, being a Christian. And he shows that this kind of giving, almsgiving is like the old language there, is a characteristic of being a follower of Jesus. And in the early church, it seemed to be a normal act. It seemed to be a normal aspect of the Christian life. You can read about this in Acts chapter 24, verse 17. What happened? See, in this way, when people like give to the poor or do mercy ministries, Christians seem a little bit like Jesus and introduce the recipient to what Jesus is like. And what is Jesus like? He's merciful. However, our lack of mercy toward others can be actually be a little bit more hidden than just rolling up that window when that person's asking for money. You know who that is, right? You all experience that. You don't know what to do. I feel that way sometimes. Sometimes our lack of mercy is a little more hidden than simply ignoring something or just saying no to orphan care or saying no to people that are downtrodden or abandoned. Even though a lot of us may claim to be a follower of Christ, we get distracted and actually ignore mercy. Jesus gives a a tough teaching about this. Matthew chapter 23, uh, verses 23 and 24. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, so you tithe and you even tithe on your, on your crops here. Spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you have rejected the more, what's that word? Important matters of the law. How can there be something more important than the other? This is Jesus saying it. Jesus, what are those more important matters of the law? Justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter. You should be doing these things without neglecting the former. Last verse. You blind guides... You're blind people guiding people that are blind. You get real picky about some really specific things, but you're, you're swallowing a camel. You strain out a nap and swallow a camel. If I work on the fine points of theology and Bible study and, and church involvement, making sure I'm a part of all the ministries at church, and, and I'm making sure that I have a good reputation in the community, but I ignore imitating God's character, his heart of mercy toward those in need, what have I become? Do you know what the answer is? Annoying. Have you met a Christian like that that knows everything? I met people when we were in our engagement of adoption saying, I'm sick and tired of seeing foreigners get adopted. If we're going to do adoption, we need to adopt people in our backyard first, but they themselves aren't adopting. So they want to criticize someone that's trying to do something that God's unable to do, but they, they themselves aren't going to do it. But they know the Bible. If I can fathom all mysteries, and if I could speak with every tongue, and if I can use all the gifts in the world, but I don't do it from a heart of love, I'm like a clanging cymbal. These kind of warnings are actually in the Old and New Testament. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Then Jesus cites this later. For I desire, this is God speaking, mercy, not sacrifice. But yet the law desires demands sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins, the law says. 
But God desires mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than the offerings. But they work together. But sometimes we just want to pull on one. Jesus cites the same idea in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We just read that. For I have not come to call the righteous, the people that think they're awesome and got their act together, but for people that know that they're sinners. Blessed are they that are poor in spirit. How is it possible to be busy with religious activity but at the same time ignore mercy to others? It is possible, right? Because we've all done it. God desires that we would bend our wills to his spirit, whereby he produces genuine compassion, expressed in acts of mercy toward others, as we've experienced such mercy in Christ to us. Mercy begets mercy. And to show that, to not show mercy is to actually be unaware that you yourself need mercy. Are you following me? Jesus gives a stunning example of mercy in a famous story. You've probably heard this story before. It's in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Have you heard this one before? The context is that a guy that knows a lot about the Bible is asking Jesus to quantify if he's really a good guy. Not Jesus, but the guy that knows the Bible. So Jesus gives this story. In reply, Jesus said to a guy that's seeking to justify himself, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of a robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he went. Then he put... The man on his own donkey took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell to the hands of the robbers? Jesus asked the expert in the law. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. There's the word. Jesus told him, yeah, go do that. See, this would have been a surprising story for Jesus' listeners in this context. In the story, the religious weren't merciful. The priest is like a pastor, and the Levite's like a worship pastor. And the Samaritan is like the enemy to the people hearing this story. Someone they never, ever thought would ever do anything merciful. And so Jesus is really pushing a button here. Truthfully, when I was just reading this story just this time, let me tell you what's happened in my mind. I think growing up, Jesus gives the story about the Samaritan used wine to, to heal those wounds. I grew up that all alcohol is bad, and so how could a good person have wine? See, that's straining out a gnat. I'd be missing the large picture because who's got the wine? Who's dancing in here? We couldn't go to movies, some good, and yet the church we meet in meets in a movie theater. But the cultural enemy in the story, the believed cultural enemy, acted in mercy. It's an unbelievable, improbable story. And in Jesus' story, we actually see a few more things about mercy. You could write these notes down here. Okay, here's a couple of things just to see in the story, just looking at the story with fresh eyes, with these things in mind. Number one, mercy sees people as they are, with their need. Number two, mercy responds with compassion. And three, the same story, mercy provides practical care and relief. 
sees people as they are, responds with compassion. Three, provides practical care and relief. It's that simple, isn't it? And yet it's so difficult. Why is it so difficult again, loved ones? Because we're selfish. See, it's a warning. This story serves as a warning to all of us who call ourselves Christian, but lack an ability to see distress or are missing a heart to respond with compassion. That's a problem. Or are not compelled by the gospel that we've received to bring relief. That's a problem. That's when the word hypocrite comes into play right there. Being a church person but not having a heart of mercy is a problem. I've got a lot to grow. Showing God's mercy to others gives genuine evidence of having then received mercy from God. So as we're coming to a close here, as you've been thinking about this message, is any one face coming to mind? Do you have someone in your life right now that you know needs to receive mercy from you? Who's your person? See, we don't want to just study the Bible and go away and have our lunch. We actually want to do what we want to do it, don't we? We want to do what we're studying. Who's your person? This came to me this morning. I shared it with the first service because I know some folks, some of us are wired like we want to ask questions and we want to debate a little bit. So one of the questions to consider is, um, does mercy ignore justice? Right? How can I, be, how can I forgive that person again? You might be thinking. <laughs> the person keeps coming to your mind today. How can I do that again? Or how can, I show, how can I show mercy when it seems that justice is demanded? Let me just say this. God's perfect in his justice. He's perfectly just and perfectly merciful. He's perfect in his timing and his judgments and his discipline. In fact, the scriptures say that he disciplines those that he loves. And he also acts in mercy. So God's divine mercy does not excuse sin. Mercy does not say sin's okay. God is not aloof. But God is slow to anger and abounding in patience. In judgment and discipline, God's mercy can be seen. Even in judgment, his mercy can be seen. And his actions can always be trusted, loved ones. So the truth is that not every scenario that you are going to face in our lives, whoever you have in your mind, that you're just like, nah, that person needs justice, not mercy. That scenario needs justice, not mercy. See, all the scenarios aren't found in Scripture. But what the Scriptures are doing then for you as a child of God, if you're in Christ, you have been adopted into his family, prince or princess here, it's not going to tell you about every circumstance of your life, but it's going to shape you to point you to know Christ, and it's going to shape you to know how to become like him so that when that circumstance comes upon you, you have the wisdom and character of Christ now to respond. So what should we do, dear ones? That is, get to know Christ. Get to know, get hunger and thirst for Christ. Then you don't have to have the anxiety about what to do in a scenario because God will help you and come through. If you ask for wisdom, he gives it, the book of James tells us. He'll give you the wisdom to know how to act justly and show mercy. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 7 one more time, the back end of it. Blessed are the merciful, truly happy are the merciful. A deep-seated contentment and joy comes from being merciful. For they, or because, they will be shown mercy. So look at this question, look at this uh, text with the question you might be asking as I was this week. Is this passage then saying that mercy is earned? Read the text as it looks in English. It, It may feel that way. But the answer has to be no, because earned mercy is not mercy at all. It's a contradiction, isn't it? Earned mercy, then, would be payment. And that's not mercy. 
So the way to read this verse is that the people who show God's mercy are happy because they've received God's mercy and are free to give mercy to others. Do you see it, loved ones? Do you see it? The people who show God's mercy are happy because they've received God's mercy and are free to give mercy to others. And one way that we do that is through orphan care. If you're sensing that you need to grow in mercy toward others, then the way to become more, a more merciful person is this, is to become a more broken person. And that's what we see in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. They all build on themselves, our pastor taught us. So if you're sensing a, a mercy problem that it's not there and you're struggling, maybe being convicted today, look at the first six things here. And it's not a list of you to try to conquer. It's how you're becoming deeper in your relationship with Christ. Take a look. Poor in spirit. Is there a meekness issue? Is there a mourning issue? If you're a Christ follower, you have to consider your, you have to consider your part in showing mercy. Not so that God will love you, but because he does. Which includes then assisting the fatherless. So you may be asking then, what should I do? What can I do? This morning we have some resources for you. We have time for you to go out. Amazing Grace Adoptions out here. Bayer is here with, uh, assisting with foster care. You can ask him any question, okay? You may be thinking to yourself, I'm too old to get involved in this. That's not true. You're still living, so you have time. So you can assist those that are doing it. We have people in our church that are foster caring now. They need encouragement. They need prayer. They need a note from you. They need a gift from you. We have people that want to adopt. They don't have the means to do it. So you, have, you might have the means. You need to do that. That's you being a part of it. We need to pray for each other. We need to figure out a way for one another to encourage one another unto mercy. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, for this morning, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy. You've extended us in Christ. We are desperate for it. Lord God, we ask that you'd help us, equip us, enable us to show that same mercy to others. And God, I pray that this church family would make a significant dent in the number of children that are looking for a home. I pray, God, that you would grow us in our mercy for one another, that we would see ways to be merciful to one another, that we'd see, see ways to meet needs tangibly in a textured way, and that we'd also be merciful in sharing the gospel, both together. I would trust you. Please guide and lead this church, that we, that we may please you by our faith and glorify you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time.